a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm still encouraging people to think while it's still legal. And joining me today, one of my favorite commentators, that would be Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Oh, good morning, Brian. And I, too, uh, am relishing in being able to continue to think for as long as we're allowed to do so. Something tells me you're going to be thinking even when it's not allowed. Uh, Well, perhaps, unless, of course, they succeed in pinning me down and putting that microchip in me. We watched a horrible movie the other night. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was about these people who signed up for experimental chipping. And this chip just sort of took over and would would punish them if they if they were wrong, thinkful or, uh, you know, deviated from the plan in any way. And at the end of it, uh, the, the woman just throws herself off a bridge to be done with the whole ordeal. Wow. Shades of things to come, perhaps. I yeah, hope not, but I wish I'd written down the name of that movie. Interesting. Well, I'm going to keep an eye out for it. Now, you write about a lot of automotive stuff, and we talk about freedom a lot, and sometimes the lines cross. And I, I noticed you've had a couple of articles that I really wanted to, to touch on with you. Uh, the first one was on driver re-education. <laughs> and, Eric, that one took yeah. me back to, to the days of driver's ed. I've got, uh, I've got one more child still waiting to take driver's ed. And I'm just wondering yep. what kind of an experience it's going to be for her. Well, it's going to be an experience that's contra everything that ought to be taught uh, with regard to driving. I, I rotated my turrets and I, and I fired at this cult of sign obedience uh, and mindless passivity, which is essentially what they equate with driving these days, at least in terms of the DMV and these government-approved so-called driving schools. What I mean by that is that you're just supposed to reflexively, mindlessly, obey whatever the sign says, regardless of conditions. An example of that being the stop sign out in the middle of nowhere where you can clearly see uh, that there's no oncoming traffic and there's no reason to come to a complete stop. And indeed, there's a lot of good reason to not come to a complete stop. You know, the preservation of kinetic energy so as to not waste fuel. You know, the government's so obsessed with us not wasting fuel, but apparently it's okay to waste fuel when you come up to a pointless stop sign and just stop and then have to restart the car. And that's where you use the most gas, by the way, is moving that three or 4,000 pounds of steel, glass, and so on uh, from a dead stop to rolling. So that's just one example, and there, there are many others. And I think the, the take-home fundamental theme of the article is to just use your judgment and evaluate a situation and then respond accordingly, and that sign obedience is not the same thing as being safe. No, I'm with you. I, and I, I'm trying to remember, Eric, I don't remember if it was you or, or someone else years ago recommended, hey, do you want to test how conditioned you are to reflexively obey? And their suggestion was find a stop sign out in the middle of nowhere where you can see very clearly all around you and make sure that nobody's coming and then run it. And, and for, mm-hmm. for most people, the first time they try to do that, it is going to be like there is a force field that they, they are driving sure. into that will stop them because they're so conditioned. But it says stop, and, and I have to stop. And even if you can see, it's clear, and you could go. It's, it's crazy. There's also this paradox where, on the one hand, they tell you that you must obey the law to the letter, uh, whatever the law happens to be. But at the same time, we all understand that if you drive exactly the speed limit and no faster, 
you're going to get run over. Oh yeah, uh, because traffic. Everybody's driving. Uh, you know, the, the unspoken law is that you can drive up to about 10 miles an hour faster than whatever the limit is, because usually cops won't harass you uh, for doing that. So that's pretty much what everybody does. But that's technically illegal. Speeding, isn't it? <laughs> so, I mean, you, people are put in this impossible position. And, of course, the, the, the same cops that are enforcing the speed limit and telling you how unsafe it is for you to drive any faster than the speed limit, we all know this. We routinely see them driving considerably faster than the speed limit. So if somebody can explain the, the logic of that to me, I'd surely appreciate it. There, there's a, a truck stop that's about two, two and a half miles up the highway from, from where I live. And I get up very early in the morning, and sometimes I go get a caffeine fix. And, and so mm-hmm. it's, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, and there's a traffic light there that I don't know who programmed that traffic light, but basically it's like, hey, if a car's coming, make it stop. And then let them sit there mm-hmm. for four or five minutes with sure. nobody around. And and so when, when I go, if look, if it's clear, I go. And and my wife is sure. always like, you know, some cop's going to see you and you're going to get a ticket. And I'm just like, I, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe I really am just being arrogant, but I'm trying to maintain my autonomy. And that's one little way that I can push back and maintain it. Well, what about just there's a dignity here issue, a dignity issue that's involved in simply using the brain that God gave you uh, and exercising your reason and your intelligence. And it's idiotic to sit there like a drone just because the light is red. This week, I've got a BMW motorcycle that I'm I'm test riding. And uh, those who are listening to the program will already know this. But motorcycles sometimes don't trip the little underground sensor that changes the light from red to green. So you can sit there at a traffic light, literally, for multiple cycles before the thing turns green, unless you just say the heck with it and go through the light. And since I'm going to use the intelligence that God gave me, I'm going through the light if it's clear. Yeah, and that's the part that people don't hear. Okay, the, the ultra law-abiding, they don't hear that part about if it's clear. They do, well, you're disobeying yep. a traffic signal, and by gosh, you deserve what you get. And, and I, I would submit those are people who've ceased to think for themselves. Well, sure. And the irony is that these people then become dependent upon the signage and the lights, and they don't use the intelligence that God gave them and the senses that they have. For example, the whole, you know, don't turn right on red. So they just sit there waiting for the light to turn red instead of looking. You know, my habit is to look, to observe cross traffic and to make a judgment accordingly. And, you know, that actually has saved me a bunch of times because if I had been just a mindless rule follower waiting for the light and assumed, oh, the light's green, it's safe, I can go now and not look to see whether cross-traffic was running the red light, I would have gotten cream. Right, right. No, and besides the fact, and I, th- I know you and I have had this conversation before, we really are something more than a dog with, with this Pavlovian response <laughs> programmed mm-hmm. into us. Oh, yes. You know, it's green, I go. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, that is, that's, that's another way of putting the theme of the article. We are more than dogs, or at least we should be. Uh, we shouldn't be trained to be just reflexive, mindless, Pavlovian uh, automatons that respond to stimulus. We should use judgment. You know, this isn't to say uh, to be irresponsible or reckless. In fact, it's exactly the opposite, to, you know, just evaluate a situation and act in a manner that is responsible and prudent for that given situation. Well, this is, this is one of the reasons you and I are friends, because we, we can agree that, you know, being a good driver is, is not about being the fastest or, or the most nimble, but it's having your head in the game. And, and when people are, are reliant only upon the signals and the signs, uh, instead of thinking actively about what they're doing, their head isn't in the game. Yes, we can form our own league of extraordinary gentlemen, which is now defined by people who think. 
Well, it's it's fun. I, I take my kids out and I teach them, you know, what, what I hope will be useful for them. And, and they're cautious drivers, but I can definitely tell once they've been through driver's ed, they are extremely cautious. For instance, um, accelerating into traffic for, or, you know, pulling away from a stop sign. They, they have been taught you should accelerate like there's an egg underneath the gas pedal and you want to yeah. crash so gently you don't you don't want to break that shell. And I'm like, no, get up to speed and don't impede the flow of traffic. That's exactly right. This passivity that they're trying to inculcate in people, um, and that's an example of it, when sometimes uh, activity is what's called for to be uh, safe and to be efficient. If you pull out in front of traffic, it's unsafe to just creep along and expect the traffic that's barreling down on you to notice that you just pulled out in front and not rear-end you. Your job when you're merging is to increase your speed to max out of traffic and to merge smoothly and competently. And if a situation arises where it's necessary to make an abrupt maneuver or turn or stop, you should do that. Not be afraid of the pedals. They're there to be used, and if you use them with competence and, and under control, you will be a safe driver as opposed to these passive, timid people who are just sign obeyers waiting to be told what to do. I think sometimes the line between decisiveness and aggressiveness gets blurred in people's minds. Well, if I'm being decisive, people are going to think I'm just being an aggressive driver. That's not necessarily the case. Well, they've attempted to conflate the two, I think, deliberately. Uh, you know, they're in trying to impute that any act of, of decision, of decisiveness, is aggressive. You know, in the same manner that if you refuse to go along with whatever the narrative is, uh, that somehow makes you a bad person because you're not slavishly herd animal-ish in your following of whatever the leader says you're supposed to do. I just remember that when my dad taught me, you know, to drive, and I was, I think I was 12 when he started teaching me, one of the things he impressed on me was if something suddenly comes into the road in front of you, it's often safer to find a way around it than to try to jam on your brakes and slide to a stop mm-hmm. before you hit it. And I found that to be very sure. good advice. It's excellent advice. Meanwhile, today what they're doing is kind of attempting to band-aid the incompetence that they have instilled via this passivity and this uh, sign obedience cult by uh, embedding all of these, as they put it, advanced safety technologies mm-hmm. in cars so that now the car applies the brakes, the car jerks the steering wheel, the car does this, the car does that, which encourages even further passivity behind the wheel. And the ultimate expression of this uh, is the so-called self-driving car where, you know, you just become a narcoleptic passenger in your own car and hope the thing doesn't drive off the cliff. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back. We have some more driving-related issues to discuss. I'm with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. There is a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Go spend some time on his website. You will be well rewarded for your efforts. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com with me. And Eric, I'm just reflecting in that last segment, I probably sound like a really lawless individual. But you know what? <laughs> I, I just, I am, I am going to hang on to my autonomy to the best of my ability. And I appreciate people like you who set the example, not only through a word, but also through deed. Well, thank you. And, you know, speaking of deeds, when I get into back and forth with people who criticize me and claim that I'm being reckless and irresponsible, I point to the fact that I've got something like, I don't know, 30 years of accident-free driving. So either I'm immensely lucky 
<laughs> or perhaps I'm doing something right. Right. I mean, there is that possibility. You may actually know what you're talking about. I know when it comes to uh, manual transmissions, you have been one of the very few voices out there lamenting the demise of the stick shift. And recently mm -hmm. you penned a column about who still wants a stick. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. It's a really interesting little news blurb. You know, I keep track of the trade press because that's what I do. And uh, the latest data from Subaru uh, has uh, this interesting point, which is that the sales of their Crosstrek, which is their little compact-sized wagon, are through the roof. They're up almost 40%. I think it's 36% to be exact. And the interesting thing about that, which struck me, is that the Crosstrek is the last Subaru other than the high-performance WRX and the uh, two-seater BRZ that you can still get with, here it comes, a manual transmission. Mm -hmm. And Subaru has said that this will, well, 2023 is going to be the last year that it's available. So I wonder if there's a correlation there, and people are snapping up this last of the manual Crosstrex while they still can. It's one of the very few new cars that you can still buy with a manual transmission. Okay, so you mentioned in the article, you know, there, there was a time when automotive makers were driven by the market, but more and more the yeah. features that are standard and the features that are taken out aren't a function of the market saying, yeah, we want this or we don't want that. It's it's the government saying, well, it has to have this kind yeah, of Yeah, the reason why it's so hard... Yeah, the reason why it's so difficult to find a new car that even offers a manual transmission is simply because it's much harder, uh, it's impossible, to program a manual transmission in such a way that it uh, performs optimally on government fuel economy tests. And those tests uh, relate to how the government uh, will fine or not a manufacturer for having met or not met the fuel economy standards. And with an automatic, you can program it to upshift as quickly as possible into one of the several overdrive ranges that most automatic transmissions now have. Many have three overdrive ranges. Uh, so it performs really well on the test. And then they can say, oh, look, you know, it gets 38 miles per gallon on the highway rather than, say, 35 miles per gallon. And people will go, oh, that's great. I'll buy that car. But then they find in the real world that when they drive a car, it's not like it is on the test. You know, the thing is, in a higher gear too soon and the engine's kind of lugging and you're not getting a lot of performance out of it. So what do you do? You push down on the gas pedal and force a downshift contrary to the programming and it winds up that the mileage you end up getting isn't particularly any, anything to write home about. And, uh, you know, you probably, if you knew how to drive a stick, could have matched it or beat it with a manual transmission. But, you know, on the test, on the government test, it doesn't do as well. So that is the incentive for the automakers to get rid of manuals in favor of automatics. Boy, I remember as as a kid going through driver's ed, and it was mainly because my family did not have stick shift cars. I dreaded the day that I drew the short straw and had to drive the driver's ed car with a stick shift. But that mm -hmm. changed once somebody taught me how to properly use a clutch, you know, so I wasn't doing that shuddering, uh, you know, getting yep. started thing. And then... It was, it was almost a matter of, of personal pride. You know, you, you could tell the kids who, who learned how to drive a stick shift became so smooth at it that uh, it, it was almost a matter of, you know, hey, this is, this is a measure of my expertise in how smoothly I can get started, shift gears, and so forth. And to, to this day, that still kind of sticks with me. Well, me too. And there's no question that acquiring a skill, being good at anything, whatever it happens to be, is a source of pride. You feel good. Hey, I, I, I learned something. I'm, I'm good at something. But it's deeper than that. With a stick, you get more emotionally involved in the act of driving. I don't think uh, it's coincidental that, that young people today are increasingly not particularly interested in cars because cars are boring. There's very little emotional investment in most cars, especially the ones with the automatics. 
But when you have a manual equipped car and you're involved in the act of driving, it's like all of a sudden you're jazzed up by it. I have, uh, I've taught a number of teenagers how to drive on stick shift cars. That's principle. I will not teach them how to drive on an automatic. And at first they were like you described, you know, oh my gosh, that shutter, shutter, and they're mm-hmm. a little frustrated, but you keep at it with them. And once they figure it out, that moment when they figure it out, they light up like a Christmas tree and they love it. And you can tell that they like the act of driving the car and they are in it. And that is something that's going to stick with them for their whole lives, I think. Okay, so I have to ask you this just because I'm curious what your technique is. When you're teaching a newbie how to properly Mm -hmm. let the clutch out so that they get a nice smooth takeoff, uh, what what kind of uh, what do you do to to help them understand that that friction point and not just dump the clutch and you know either burn rubber or or lurch forward? Well, I'm glad you asked that because there is a technique that I figured out, uh, and uh, it works best if you have a car that has got a pull up manual emergency brake lever. Okay, so I use that. I'm in the passenger seat with the kid, and I use that to keep the car under control. I tell them not to worry about the car rolling backward. I've got it. And I can modulate the, the brakes using the emergency brake while they get that sense of, of feathering the clutch and the throttle and that point of engagement without the abruptness of it. And I find that it is a very effective teaching tool, and it helps them to get it a lot more quickly than the, you know, the jerk and shutter thing. Yeah. Because, look, it's it's scary the first time a person learns to, to drive it. I know there are people, us uh, us Gen Xers, we like to refer to the stick shift as an anti-theft mm-hmm. device because the, the following <laughs> generations can't yeah. figure it right. out. Right. And it's true. You know, and the poor kids, it's not their fault. You know, they grew up in a world where the predominant car was a car with an automatic. That's just what was available when they became of age because that's what their parents were driving. And generally speaking, you learn to drive on whatever your parents were driving. That's, you know, that's true. Whereas our generation, and, and even more so the prior generation, the predominance was manual. You know, most cars, particularly economy cars, uh, you know, you got a Volkswagen Beetle, 99 out of 100 of those were manuals. Most of the little Japanese economy cars of the 70s were manuals. So, you know, you're a kid back in the 80s or the 70s, and the first car you get an opportunity to drive is some little beat-up economy car or an old truck with a three on the tree or something like that. And, hey, that's it. You know, you've got to learn to drive that if you want to drive. I still remember how impressed I was in sixth grade when uh, a friend of mine was uh, was asked by his dad, hey, would you back that school bus around over here behind the barn? And I climbed mm-hmm. in the bus with him and watched this 12-year-old kid drive this old, I'm assuming it was like a 1950s model school bus. He had a double clutch mm-hmm. and everything. I was in awe. I, I'd never seen oh, yeah. that kind of coordination before. Yeah, and you know, I live in the country, so uh, there are a lot of country people, a lot of farm people out here, and uh, that's normal. You know, farm kids, uh, boys and girls, when they're you know, 13, 14 years old, have already driven tractors and combines and all sorts of other things that you, know, you need to know how to drive in order to handle one of those things. So graduating from that to a car is no big deal at all for them. Well, I'm I'm glad we had this conversation. I'm I'm feeling encouraged, and um, right now I don't have a stick shift car, but uh, but for my daughter's sake, I really hope that I can get my hands on one so she can learn the thrill of of safely driving a manual transmission. Well, you might might have a look at that Crosstrek. You know, it's a phenomenal little car, and it's a pretty affordable car. I think it's about twenty four thousand dollars sticker with the manual. Oh, and I should mention there's another perk if you get the manual. Subaru Delete options, all or almost all of the advanced safety assistance technology, which comes <laughs> standard with the automatic version of that car. Nice. 
So, so you're actually the one in control as opposed to the computer. Yeah, you know, my sister actually just got herself a cross trip uh, based on my recommendation. So uh, hopefully that's a fairly strong recommendation to folks listening to the show. Excellent. Eric, I appreciate visiting with you each week. I think uh, maybe sometime down the road, you and I should consider opening a driving school together. I think that's a capital idea. You know, it's, it's something that actually uh, there's a crying need for it. Um, in all seriousness, it's, you know, this isn't fun and games. If, you know, if I had a kid of my own, I would be practicing the same things that I'm preaching. It's really important. You know, you're handling a potentially very dangerous piece of equipment. And I think the way they are teaching kids to drive today is very dangerous. Well, in the meantime, I'm just going to steer my kids towards your website. That's ericpetersautos.com. Eric, great to visit with you once again, my friend. Likewise, Brian. Look forward to our next one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to garagedoorproservices.com. If you look in my show notes, you'll find a link. It'll take you right to their website. If you live in the southwestern corner of Utah, meaning Cedar City, St. George, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, beautiful area, a lot of growth going on there. And if you need someone to install, service, or repair your garage door, Garage Door Pros are the folks you need to talk to. Now, you can pick up the phone and call them at 435-525-2773 or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. Learn a little bit more about the company. Seth is such an amazing businessman, and, and the model that he has set up really is built on take care of the customer, give them extraordinary good service. And as you read the reviews of what their customers are saying about them, you'll see garagedoorproservices.com. That's the choice for people who are, are serious about being well taken care of. So if you, if you subscribe to my show notes, you're going to see that uh, each day I supply a meme or something that's thought-provoking there. Um, I, I don't often talk about these on the show, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this one today just because it hit me as, as being especially true for the times that we live in. It's a tweet from an individual uh, named Kevin Pham, P-H-A-M. And it says, worshiping Satan by being a relativist, hedonist, individualist is not being edgy. That's mainstream. Worshiping God by keeping his commandments and loving your enemies is being edgy. Because you will most likely be killed for it. That's living life on the edge. I know some people are probably going, whoa, whoa, hey, (laughs) where exactly are we going with this? But I think there's a lot of truth to this. If you want to know what it's like to be hated and despised in society today, all you have to do is just maintain that, well, you know, there is such a thing as right and wrong, and I'm determined that I'm going to live and and be as good a person as I possibly can. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go impose goodness on everybody I see. You, you there, stand still. I have some goodness I'm going to put on you. No, it's, it's just a matter of if you're going to be a good person, you're going to take serious heat. And if you want to just fit in with the mainstream and basically do whatever the mainstream is doing, which I don't know if you've noticed, but it's getting more depraved by the day. What What is acceptable to the mainstream? In fact, not just acceptable, but, but must be celebrated with us or else you're suspect. It's dark stuff. 
So I'm inviting you, go ahead and live life on the edge. I know it feels like there's, there's very few people willing to do it. But the world needs sources of light right now, and that's where light comes from. Not people out there self-aggrandizing, looking for, you know, hey, look at me, everybody, look at me, trying to draw attention to themselves. But just simply living as a good person. Not virtue signaling, but taking the time and effort to be a decent person in everything that you do, every aspect of your life. As uh, one of my favorite podcasters, Andy Frazella, says, being a great person, personal excellence, is the ultimate act of rebellion right now. And I think he's right. I'm just taking it in a slightly spiritual direction here, but I think it still applies. And, you know, as much as some try to pretend that faith is nothing more than a big mass delusion that people have bought into throughout the history of mankind. Curious, isn't it, that that uh, there's almost no time in human history you can point to where people haven't had this mass delusion. There's something greater than us out there. But faith was a decisive factor when America was a young nation. In fact, I have an article here from uh, Vincent McCaffrey. This was published on amgreatness.com, The Faith of Nations. Now, the subtitle says, The faith that we once knew has failed us. No longer a young nation, we have to find our way back to the faith of our youth in order to thrive. And I know that most things tend to be framed in a political sense. Well, all we got to do is get the right politicians in the right places, and that's going to fix it. And and that could play a role, so please don't misunderstand me. But it's going to really start with what kind of people are we? Are we good quality people? Are we people of integrity and character? Because people of integrity and character won't tolerate corrupt politicians. They won't tolerate, you know, people who people or businesses or institutions that are out there exploiting people. Here's how Vincent McCaffrey puts it. He says, in the faith of nations is their life and their undoing, much as it is with individuals. We may survive on the faith of others, but we cannot flourish any more than a child would when attempting to live out the dreams of his parents without making them his own. Faith is an intangible The artificial intelligence of a computer might precisely calculate the chance of a success, but it has no clue as to the value of failure. Faith can absorb both and then some. Young men and women, if they have the courage to leave home, the amniotic sack of college and strike out on their own, will almost inevitably meet with a series of failures that lead them to a loss of faith. Many do not survive the loss and have succumbed to dire fates. Others seek refuge in marriage or in the family business or return to college, and the fear of failing again keeps them there. And so it is with nations. The turn of fortune that preoccupied Britain, the most powerful nation on earth in 1812, and allowed a gangly youth of a republic, the United States, to escape and overcome its initial hubris rather than fall apart, was not inevitable. The national faith of America at the time had the tinny ring of adolescent bravado, The math of the moment was against us. But already in those first decades, a single mind had formed. And when the United States faced its first great crisis in the Civil War, success was difficult to imagine. This wasn't just a matter of the North defeating the South. The very foundation had been cracked. One portion had disavowed the other. How could this rending be healed? A reaffirmation of principles was the key, and that success in the years to follow was resounding. Now, he says it could be argued that that crisis was never resolved because force cannot make right what was wrong. The blasphemy of slavery was ended, but not by persuasion. The constitutional principle of human equality was made manifest, but at too great a cost in the means used. 
And the subtextual life lesson to the nation was coercion works. The ghost of that is with us yet. He says, our faith has been in a democracy of public will, but it has often been tainted by the poison of power and the use of force. In the past, we've generally been satisfied with allowing the constitutional system to operate, but now, if the outcome doesn't bend the way we want, we are willing to use coercion. That's what was done in 1861 and again in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve and the Income Tax Act as a means of financing government excursions. And in 1917, with an army draft in order to go to war for purely political purposes. Do we hear echoes? And again, 1932, with Herbert Hoover's Reconstruction Finance Corporation and Revenue Act. And the beginning of the Roosevelt era of public works. And again, in 1949, 1941, rather, with our belated entry into World War II. And now, as if by habit, almost daily. Meanwhile, part of the electorate still clings to a belief in the old republic, while another advances a brave new world of metrical perfection. In the meantime, the laws of human nature have not been repealed. Elections are bought as sure as the politicians who exercise the power. The electorate assumes the corruption and acts accordingly. The nation has reached a fattened middle age, and there are too many who believe in getting along. You got yours, I got mine, to hell with anyone else. I don't care what happens after I'm dead. But he says, we are still the same species of human beings we were 200 years ago, even if lacking in the basic knowledge necessary to survive. We will freeze to death without fire. There can be no future in that. We will starve to death without food, though most of us can no longer grow our own. The culture that made our republic possible has been dismissed in favor of a progressive agenda designed by a self-avowed elite incapable of imagining consequences or else determined to carry out its globalist agenda no matter the cost. What need is there of a republic now? Now, the falling birth rate is very much a part of this picture. And the future is the inheritance we leave. Who wants children if their own concerns are so self-centered that they cannot imagine the consequences of what they do? It is the idealism of youth that fills the army in times of national peril. What does it say when recruits are difficult to find? The faith that we once knew has failed us. It has failed us before and we survived, but at great cost. Imagining our survival now as anything resembling the republic we once were is very difficult, but we've been to that brink before. He says reaffirming our principles again is the best, perhaps the only step toward reinvigorating our nation. If we dig in during this crisis of faith, as President Reagan once averred, we may still find a pony beneath the offal. Our choices are few. Perfection's not to be had. Madison had it right from the start. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. Of those who are electable, elect those who are most likely to oppose authoritarian government and do it again and again. No promises accepted. Actions will tell the tale. Find ways to protect your vote from the authoritarians. Insinuate yourself into the process to see this done. Disagree, but do so both publicly and peacefully. An honest disagreement with someone who would otherwise be your friend can lead to enlightenment for both. Youth may be wasted on the wrong people, as an old man on a porch once said to George Bailey, but it's the only means of practical learning. And having made our mistakes, it's the only way back to the future we once thought was ours. So Vincent McCaffrey says, make it a matter of faith. I know that's going to look different for each one of us at an individual level, but I think it's hard to deny what he's pointing out here. Once we had a kind of collective faith, or even if we had minor disagreements, there was still some common ground and an appeal to heaven. 
What would it take to find that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to recognize HSLAmmo.com as one of my premier sponsors on this program. There's a link to their website in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Likewise, lifesavingfood.com. There's real peace of mind in knowing that you have preparedness. Now, look, we're not going to be prepared for everything, right? The giant meteor that's coming to, to wipe us out like the dinosaurs, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe that's a little too optimistic. But nonetheless, there are so many things you and I can do that can better our position whether things go great or whether things take a turn for, you know, the, the difficult or dangerous. Please support my sponsors. Let them know that, you're, that, that you received the message about what they have to offer. And if you have need of their business, you know, their, their product or their service, please consider doing business with them. If you know somebody who could use it, maybe refer them. I'd greatly appreciate it. One of the biggest challenges that every generation faces is how do we pass along the ideals and the virtues that underlie our civilization? Paul Rosenberg had an essay recently called Transmitting Civilization is Now Up to Us. This is pretty interesting stuff, and it puts a little responsibility on us. I'm going to warn you right now, you you might feel a bit of weight on your shoulders as I share this with you. That's actually a good thing. Paul Rosenberg says, Western civilization, the most effective major civilization in human history, has lost its mechanisms of transmission. And that's a big problem. Civilizations are simply collections of humans who share certain ideas. And if those ideas are no longer passed down, the civilization breaks, degrades, and vanishes. Western civilization had specific and important virtues like cooperation, initiative, creativity, curiosity, co-dominance, open inquiry, and justice. If we lose those, we stand in jeopardy and our grandchildren stand in grave jeopardy. Now, he says, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the institutional failures of our time. We've all watched them become epic. But he says, over the past few years, we've seen proud censorship in government media, the big tech complex at horrifying levels, even in publishing, and the various rights groups surrendered in the process. Freedom of choice was also trashed. He's not talking about abortion here. He's talking about our ability to choose for ourselves. Large swaths of academia and nearly the entire education complex drove this, cultishly. The largest corporations jumped on board as well, firing or punishing those who refused to conform. So none of these can be said any longer to be transmitting Western civilization. In fact, they've openly opposed it and are more than likely to defend their choices. Then comes the marginalization of the family. Transmitting civilization used to be the job of families. But over the past century, the state has overcome society and even overcome many parents. First of all, parents simply don't have time for their children as they once did. Certainly, good parents do spend time with their children, but nearly all families require two full-time incomes these days. And the ever-working parent has only a certain amount of energy. These parents, while heroic, are easily worn down with all the negative consequences that brings. And then comes the fact that children are shipped off to schools for the bulk of their time. And as noted above, most of those schools have become enemies of Western civilization. Now, if that sounds defeatist, listen to what he has to say from here. 
Paul Rosenberg says, I think our civilization can be saved, but the West's present institutions have failed openly and vigorously. So that leaves this crucial job to us, to every serious adult available. So to assist in this effort, he says, here's a passage from my book, Production Versus Plunder, where I explain what Western civilization really is. And he says, I hope this is helpful to you. Western civilization might be summed up in the belief that truth unfolds through time in a communal process. That's a quote from Carol Quigley. Now, the quote above expresses a great core of Western civilization, if not the core. There are many facets to the formula. Truth is revealed by a communal or cooperative process. And while this statement may be new to most of us, its effects are not. Everyone in the West faces them every day, so much so that we never really consider them. This formulation has been assumed many times in this book already, and by the sixth chapter, phrases like, we know that, or we have no information on, have been used many times. Every time we use such words, we presume that truth is built, that all of us may contribute to this building of knowledge, and that we will certainly have more in the future than we have now. Truth is revealed by a cooperative process. Now, obviously, this belief makes Western civilization optimistic, but there is more than just that. It also makes authoritarian rule incompatible with our beliefs. If the final truth is yet to be revealed, who can say that he or she has full knowledge and should be given full powers? It also makes the West open to new ideas from any source. If something contributes to the accumulation of truth, who cares where it comes from? The idea that full knowledge comes in the future is also found in the root documents of Christianity, where Jesus talks about things that are unknown to the Son but to the Father only. Even the most strident evangelicals, if questioned property, properly, rather, will make the distinction between having some perfect truth and having all perfect truth. Another important aspect, he says, is revealed by saying, we know. Okay, who is we? Is it any individual who, it is any individual, rather, who shares in the stream of truth. And that assumes a civilization based upon merit, individuality, and equality. Truth does not descend from a ruler or from any authority. We can all contribute to truth and we can all preserve it. Again, dictatorships and blind faith are fully incompatible with the Western ideal. No one has the full truth now because it lies in the future. Thus, no one should be followed with blind faith. Closely related to this ideal is the assumption that we are a community of interest. We don't all have the same dreams and desires. We don't all have to fit into the same mold. Even so, we may all contribute to the accumulation of truth. And so long as we don't intrude upon others, we, should, we feel we should be free to pursue our narrow personal interests. This builds civilization on a decentralized model which is exceptionally resilient and open to improvement. Beautifully said. Paul Rosenberg says these authentic Western virtues are necessary for a prosperous humanity, and the job of keeping them alive has fallen to us. We must do this work. I'd like to think that's what we're trying to do. At least I, th- I, th- I try to think that's, that's what I'm trying to do on a daily basis here. But the point here that, that I, I really want to hammer home is your help is needed. No matter how lowly your station in life, no matter how much you think, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm nothing. I, I, I can't contribute in any way. I'm sorry, but that's wrong. The seeds of greatness are right there inside of you, and there's a difference that you were born to make In fact, there's a a mission that only you can accomplish. And the sooner you figure out what that purpose or that mission is and align your life with it, 
the sooner the world will be measurably improved in a way that only you can do. Now, if that just sounds like so much self-help claptrap, I don't know what to say. Someone introduced me to this idea years ago, and I was, you know, at the time it kind of rocked my world because it made me realize, holy cow, there's more to life than the way that I've been living it, which was just, you know, try to climb the corporate ladder, you know, earn that bigger paycheck, get an impressive title, make more money, and buy toys until you retire, right? That's what success looks like. But I see success in a much different light now. And at first I was kind of angry when someone stripped away all the, uh, you know, the, the worldly philosophy that tells me that, uh, hey, it's all about material wealth and all about material success. Success is about having impact. And as I have uh, put this to the test and lived it out in my own life, I am absolutely convinced there's not a single person you can meet, however great, however small, that does not have the capacity to change the world for the better. And in fact, maybe a God-given mission to do so. That includes you. So don't hide behind false modesty. There are things that only you can do. And they may be small things. That doesn't matter. It matters that you do them. I've said this before, and I'm not trying to be self-deprecating when I say this. I have no idea how many people hear the message that I put out on a daily basis. I, I don't know. And at this point, I really don't care because it's not a numbers game to me any longer. I'm not obsessed about, oh, well, what are my listens to? How can, how can I chart, you know, how, how popular I am? Or, you know, that's not what's important. This much I do know. There are people who are looking for truth, people who are looking for light, looking for a reason to keep moving forward, even though it's getting harder and harder by the day to do so. And I believe that a part of my purpose in life is to provide encouragement however I can to remind them that they are not alone, that they are on the right path, and that their efforts, however big, however small, do make a difference. Now, I don't often encounter these people. You know, I mean, I hear from folks from time to time. I appreciate the feedback that I get from my audience, but I I never know for sure who's listening. It doesn't matter. My job is to simply put the truth out there as I best understand it and let the audience, however big or small it is, decide what to do with that. So now you understand my motivations a little bit better. Thankfully, fame and fortune have not handicapped me in this journey. But it ain't about fame and fortune. Those things are fleeting. Impact, on the other hand, that tends to stick around a while. So that's what I go for. This is The Brian Hyde Show.